is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. In for Mike Simpson today, I'm Chris Seedens. And I'm Rob Archer. In for Charles Feldman. President Biden's made good on another campaign promise. He's going to pardon all prior federal offenses for simple marijuana possession. It's a move that senior administration officials said would affect thousands of people. We go in-depth on this big step toward possible federal decriminalization of marijuana. Governor Newsom signed a new bill to fight COVID misinformation, but some doctors say it could do more harm than good. And former football star in Georgia, Senate candidate Herschel Walker, accused of major hypocrisy when it comes to his position on abortion. We're going to look into whether this could tip the power in the Senate next year. Also, there's a new report. It suggests criminal charges could be filed soon against Hunter Biden, the president's son. We'll go in depth into the evidence investigators claim to have against him. The Biden administration could make a big move to limit China's access to computer chip technology. We'll explain why that's a big deal. And we've been waiting for this for a while now. It's finally here. The KNX KNX LA mayoral debate just four hours away. We're getting close. Karen Bass, Rick Caruso will be in studio with us here live to answer the tough questions. And if you like petting dogs, there's a reason why your brain likes it as well. We'll explain. I like how the petting dog comes in right after the mayor debate (laughs) because it makes your brain feel good. We're going to start with President Biden's move toward uh, to pardon simple marijuana possession. Ellen Kopp is deputy director for California Normal, which has advocates for cannabis consumers. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, that was one of the big issues as states began to decriminalize uh, marijuana in state laws. It still remained at the federal level, and that made it hard for legal, legit dealers to to do any banking on their business because of, you know, at the federal level, it was still illegal. Is that where we're headed now, where it's going to be decriminalized uh, federally? Well, I hope so, although this move won't take us there directly. Uh, There is a Safe Banking Act that's been getting a lot of support in Congress, but it has deadlocked in the Senate like the uh, legalization proposals from both the Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, So in the meantime, we're very elated that President Biden has taken this step, making good on a campaign promise to release anyone in federal prison for smoking marijuana. And this will more importantly help uh, people with ancillary problems like uh, job discrimination and housing because they have some kind of criminal record, federal criminal record. Uh, He also enjoined governors of states to follow suit and do the same thing, which should help a lot more people who are in prison on state charges or, or having that affect their record. And he called for a review of marijuana's status, scheduling status. It's now Schedule 1, just like heroin in in fentanyl, you know, in uh, federal law. And he assigned uh, Health and Human Services Director Xavier Becerra from California to conduct a review of that. And that could, if if it's descheduled at the federal level, that could really help with legalization. Ellen, uh, in recent years, I know uh, other countries like Canada has made uh, pot legal, and they did it differently than the United States, where it's now legal at the federal level. And that's what we're talking about, the possibility of that here. Talk to us a bit about the fact that it's such a hodgepodge in the United States, where in certain states it's legal, certain states it's not. In certain states, you're breaking the law by doing it. And the fact that overall, the, the feds look at it as being illegal. Tell us about the dilemma faced by so many people because of the hodgepodge schedule that we have here in the United States? 
Yeah, it's caused a lot of different problems. For example, we got a bill passed to allow terminally ill patients to use cannabis in hospitals, and it was held up because, oh, there might be a federal funding issue. So there's all kinds of different ways where that federal law affects it. I mean, we, we're now in a case situation where 19 states have legalized marijuana for recreational use, 39 for medical use, and there's another five states that are going to vote on it in November. Uh, 60% or more of the United States citizens are in favor of full legalization and 80% for medical. So this is a very smart move politically for Biden to take it right now, and I think it's a harbinger of things to come, because I think he wants Democrats to win in November, and this is a way to do it. Get that, get them on the page. Get people to turn out to vote. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is a political year, and, and obviously there are political reasons for doing this. But uh, also on the other side, uh, aren't there some states right now, this being uh, campaign season already, uh, that are going to look at like, well, if President Biden wants it, we're against it. And isn't this going to toughen some pushback in some states that are maybe holding off on decriminalizing marijuana? That may be true, and uh, maybe that was part of the calculus. But the states that are voting on it in November, Arkansas, Maryland, Missouri, North and South Dakota, I mean, it's starting to get into the region in states, you know, where you wouldn't expect it. And the polls are showing favorable results in those states. How do you react to those who may be listening right now who really feel that this is a wrong move, uh, both statewide and at the federal level, that, uh, you know, we hear this often, that marijuana is seen as, uh, as a gateway drug? Well, actually, federal government's own studies have shown that it's not. Uh, it, if anything, it's a drug off of more harmful drugs. Uh, more, more and more studies come out all the time that states with legal shops have uh, less opiate problems, less opiate overdoses. Uh, people are able to substitute a less harmful drug or a more harmful one. And uh, you might even throw alcohol into that mix in some cases. So, you know, I hear that less and less. I've been in this 30 years now. And uh, the tide is really turning. This is actually a really good indication that it's turning in our direction right now. All right. Ellen, thank you. That's Ellen Comp. She's a deputy director of California Normal, which advocates for cannabis consumers. And right now, though, some doctors say they're concerned about a new bill Governor Newsom just signed. Uh, it would punish doctors who knowingly give patients false or misleading information about COVID-19. And what could the long-term impacts of this be when it comes to patient-doctor relationships? Dr. Jay Bhattacharya is a professor of health policy at Stanford University and a co-author of the Great Barrington Declaration in 2020, which emphasized focused protection on vulnerable groups rather than widespread lies. Lockdowns. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, so, you know, here again, we have an issue where we have to balance the uh, public health against free speech. And where does one draw that line and how do we draw it? And, and what do we say about it? Because on the one hand, you would have some doctors who are, you know, p- perhaps on that side, that say uh, the uh, pandemic was not that bad or or vaccines are not good for you or whatever. And do they have a right to say that if it endangers public health? How do how do you see where that line should be drawn i guess i don't see it as a as a uh a, a, something with it's in conflict the way you get good solid public health messaging out is not by censoring bad information but rather by building trust in public health and giving out good information public health itself has made tremendous mistakes during the pandemic for instance uh, we closed our schools even though much of europe didn't and the evidence didn't suggest it was a good idea to do so uh we 
uh, adopted vaccine mandates that didn't account for the fact that there was uh, tremendous, there was good protection that you get after you've recovered. And of course, so many people had already had COVID and recovered, and when many nevertheless lost their jobs over the vaccine mandates. Uh, the right way to manage this is the way we've always managed this. Let a lot of people speak, build tr- confidence in public health by being trustworthy, not telling noble lies about masks, for instance, uh, as such as that was done in the early days of the pandemic. And then what you'd have is people would look to the trusted authorities uh, for good information because they're trustworthy. Now what you have is a suppression of other people's voices, many of whom were saying wrong thing, you know, the vaccine is not magnetic. Um, but the way to counter that is by good information. If you suppress, it's like in the, if you, uh, someone told me in the old days when I was little that I'm not allowed to go read a book, I'd go find a book to read. Mm. That's essentially what we're doing here. Doctor, how might this law impact doctor-patient relationships? I think it's deadly for doctor-patient relationships. This law, at least in, in terms of what it, what it actually is supposed to do, is it's supposed to tell doctors that if they tell patients misinformation, contrary to what public health authorities are currently saying, that they can lose their license. In effect, it, what it does is it puts public health in the room with doctors, with their patients. So a patient has some concerns about, you know, maybe they have some particular genetic condition. They're worried about whether they can take the vaccine or they, they you know, they, they really have a tough time with masks and they want to mask uh, some kind of exemption. And they talk to the doctor. The doctor is no longer serving the interest of the patient, but rather serving the interest of public health. Uh, you really need to have doctors really just concerned about the patient in front of them and not worried about their license if they happen to contradict public health advice uh, in the, it, given their best professional judgment. Well, you know, we like this uh, idea. We like to think that it's true that if you let everybody speak, let everybody take part in the marketplace of ideas and the best ideas and the true ideas will win out. That may be so, but we live in a different world than that now where people reject anything automatically that doesn't align with their political view or religious view, and they don't even want to hear the other side, and they don't. And then we have a vast selection of media outlets and social media where we can insulate ourselves from viewpoints we don't want to hear. So when you have uh, uh, someone who's a doctor and they've got that doctor in front of their name, so some people will trust that, on face value, and they say, uh, just an extreme example, no, don't take the COVID vaccines, take ivermectin instead, take the horse paste, and that could cause damage or harm or even death for some people. And yet there are some people who do not want to hear from the other side that, no, that's bad for you. You need to take these vaccines. So how do we Without fixing all of culture, how do we fix that? <laughs> I mean, that's a tall order, of course, to fix all of culture. Uh, and you're right, of course, that it, it has become quite polarized, even along political lines. But even that itself is a failure of public health. Public health is not intrinsically a political uh, thing. It should never have become a Republican-Democrat thing. Public health, to be effective, needs to talk to basically everybody. 100%, 95% of the population should be trusting public health. By aligning public health with a particular political party, it has it essentially what it's done is it's created half the, the American public doesn't trust public health. Uh, it, you know, public health authorities uh, endorsed a political candidate for the first time in living memory. You know, the Journal of American, I think, uh, New England Journal of Medicine, uh, the uh, a whole bunch of public health authorities endorsed a political candidate. That was an enormous mistake because public health has to speak to everybody it, to undermine the trust 
worthiness that public health needed to retain its authority. Um, so yes, there are other voices. That's all. There've always been other voices, and people are always making mistakes. That will continue for the for the remain for the rest of time. That's nothing new, Doctor. The, yeah, I was going to say one last question before we let we let you go, and we're getting a little bit tight on time. Are you? Are, is part of your concern that this could be a slippery slope? I mean, I think it already has slipped. Mm. Uh, the, the the key thing is that when you essentially get this kind of legal authority between doctors and patients, it not only undermines authority in public health, but it also undermines the authority of doctors. And I'm really afraid that patients will start to get harmed because they no longer trust their doctors who they think are acting in on, on behalf of public health rather than on behalf of them. Okay. Sir, thank you again. That's uh, Dr. Uh, Jay Bhattacharya. He's a professor of health policy at Stanford University. All right, coming up, microchips are at the center of what could become a major global dispute. We look into why, and if you like dogs and other animals, and I'm very upset the copy does not say the word cats here, we're learning why we Mm. all feel good when we pet them. Cat lover, you. Right now, the balance of power in the U.S. Senate may come down to the key race in Georgia between Democratic incumbent Raphael Warnock and Republican Herschel Walker, former NFL star running back, of course. Report earlier this week in the Daily Beast claimed that Walker paid for a woman's abortion in 2009. Even though he says he's opposed to abortion, Walker denies the allegation. They have furthered up their reporting this week uh, just yesterday, saying that the woman who claims that uh, Walker wanted the abortion was, in fact, uh, the woman who was the mother of one of his children. With us now to discuss more of this is uh, Charles Bullock, a political science professor at the University of Georgia. Uh, Sir, thanks for joining us. First of all, maybe let's lay this out. How important is this race, this race in Georgia, when it comes to the control of the U.S. Senate? Well, in 2021, this race, along with the other special elections of the U.S. Senate from Georgia, determined which party would control the Senate. Now, in Georgia, unlike other states, you have to win with a majority, so it's conceivable that neither candidate, neither Walker nor Warnock, gets a majority next no, this coming November, in which case, if there were, say, 50 successes by Republicans and 49 by Democrats, then a runoff in Georgia, which would take place in early December, might once again determine which party controls the Senate. All right. This issue with uh, Herschel Walker, though, this this uh, abortion issue, I and mean, he's come down with a pretty strict stance on abortion, no exceptions uh, right. for, for anything. And then, of course, now the word comes out that he's paid for an abortion and some conflicting kind of statements from Walker. I, 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 I don't want to go into too much about how he says things, because uh, I think there are some other issues there. But uh, there was uh, one conservative political commentator who said, you know, it was on the side of abortion is murder and we can't allow it for any case, but then turned around and said, I don't care if Herschel Walker paid for an abortion because it's about taking control of the Senate. Uh, how do I guess this is politics in America, but how do we how do we uh, put those two facts together in that uh, we're taking a stance on abortion that it's murder, but at the same time, it's OK if he did it because we need to win the Senate. Right. Yeah. And that's the kind of the rationalization that some Republicans are engaging in right now in Georgia is they maybe. The abortion issue here, or maybe some other issues, and there have been a number of scandals to come forward. But some voters are going to say, yeah, I'm willing to put all that aside because I think it is so important that uh, Republicans take control of the Senate. And the only way that Georgia can participate in that is if uh, Republicans get out and elect Herschel Walker. So for some voters, yeah, they can overlook this. But what may be critical would be whatever share of likely Republican voters who may look at this abortion 
issue as it's come up now and say, yeah, I could put up with some of the other scandals to come out concerning Herschel Walker, but I can't go there with him. So if that turns off, you know, 10, 20,000 voters, the state is evenly divided as Georgia. That could determine the outcome of this election. There are many people comparing this to the uh, the Billy Bush on the uh, the bus access Hollywood uh, tape that affected uh, Donald Trump during the uh, the election campaign back heading into the 2016 presidential race. Um, this quite serious as well. What what can Herschel Walker do? What should he do? Maybe from a political standpoint to try and deflect from this. Yeah, well, he, as you say, he has uh, denied it. He says he's going to file suit. Uh, there are also reports, however, that his campaign staff was aware of this and just hoped that it would not come out during the course of the campaign. So what he will do, I think, is continue to you know, go to Republican events, try to rally the supporters, and hope that there are enough of them who are willing to overlook this uh, break with what he has said before and uh, break with what may be their own values uh, because they're willing to put control of the Senate ahead of those other kinds of concerns. Okay. Charles, thank you again. That is a Charles Bullock, a political science professor at the University of Georgia, joining us on KNX In-Depth. Thank you, sir. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer, along with Chris Seatons. Well, could the son of the president face criminal charges? The Washington Post now reporting federal agents investigating Hunter Biden believe they have gathered enough evidence to charge the first son with tax crimes, as well as a false statement related to a gun purchase. The decision to charge Hunter Biden, though, would be made by a federal prosecutor. And so far, no decision's been made. Rachel Vize is a defense attorney, legal analyst, and managing partner at Zweibach Vize and uh, Coleman. Thank you so much for joining us today. So the first question is, how serious are these charges and how likely does it appear that he is going to be charged? It's very interesting. So it is up to the prosecutor and they have prosecutorial discretion to determine whether or not he would be charged. As for the gun paperwork violation, that is a rarely charged offense. That specific charge would relate to Hunter Biden saying that he was not using drugs at a time where all the evidence says he was using drugs. And that I think if his last name wasn't Biden, this would be a pretty much no big deal type of incident, as that is a rarely charged crime. As for the tax crimes, which I think is more difficult for the prosecutors to show, that's really where I believe the U.S. attorneys will be weighing whether or not to charge him. In Well, in the end, do you think prosecutors will file charges in this case? Well, the prosecutor that has the discretion over this is a Trump appointee. The U.S. attorney um, in Delaware will be the person that has been given this discretion. So it's a pretty big deal, I think, politically. And as to the tax crimes, again, it depends on the severity of those and the weight of the evidence on those. The gun form, he may decide to charge, but that would, I think, look like a political charge if that were to happen. Okay, so yes, this is a political year, and if the Republicans manage to take control of either the House or the Senate, uh, is there enough here? Because it, I, I think it's a given that that it's going to be you know Hunter Biden investigations all day, every day, uh, for two years at least. Uh, is there enough here, though? That you know that that's not to say there might not be something there that that is real. Is there enough here for uh, Republicans to make hay out of this? Oh, there's enough here. Republicans 
to make hay out of politically speaking, whether he is charged or whether he's not charged. Either side will definitely have an opinion on how that goes. Again, the tax charges would be the more serious charge out of the two possibilities. And as it stands, the fact that this information was leaked from agents is in itself illegal, as they are not supposed to be leaking any kind of information as it relates to ongoing investigations. So that in and, it's, in and of itself is a political issue. <laughs> and, and I take it because of his name, his last name, Biden. Uh, that means that the those involved here are going to really have to make sure they cross every T and dot every I. Oh, yes. There's a there's a lot of scrutinization that will be going on as it relates to every single step of anything ongoing from here. Now, as so far as I know, uh, I, I haven't heard uh, President Biden uh, comment on this investigation one way or the other. I think he's wisely taken the position of hands off. I'm not saying he's bound up, not interfering at all, because you want to avoid even the appearance of interfering in this. Uh, has Have you heard of anything where the president or anyone at the White House has weighed in on this? We have not. And I believe they are specifically trying not to weigh it in and specifically leaving it in the hands of that a Trump appointee. And frankly, the Trump appointees, when a new president comes in, those should all be replaced at some point during Biden's presidency. And now, if and when he replaces the Delaware U.S. attorney, that will look that may look bad, like he's trying to get rid of him as it relates to his son's investigation. But again, replacing him would be in the normal course of action of his presidency. Uh, you know, that is interesting. Uh, they might decide, uh, because of political appearances, uh, to, to hold off on taking any action against uh, this attorney, even though that would be the normal course of action. I think they have probably so far held off. Most They have done a lot of appointments as it relates to U.S. attorneys in the various districts across the country, and he has not been replaced in any way. So that may be just to look very hands-off as it relates to this investigation and let it just play out in the normal course of a U.S. attorney investigation. All right. Rachel, thank you. That is Defense Attorney Rachel Fizet joining us on KNX In-Depth. Microchips are at the center of a big fight between the U.S. and China. The Biden administration is set to announce some new measures to restrict Chinese companies from getting access to technologies that lead to high-performance computing. Now, the measures would be uh, some of the biggest steps taken by this White House to cut off China's access to advanced semiconductor technology. Why are microchips so important? Let's delve deeper into that. With us now is Chris Miller, director of uh, the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Eurasia program, and he's the author of Chip War, the Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Chris, thanks for joining us. First of all, tell us why the Biden administration's actions are such a big deal. Well, the White House realizes that Computing power is at the core of all of not only the key technological and economic trends that we see right now, but also for the future of military power. And they're worried that China is beginning to catch up to 
what the U.S. can produce. And the rules that are going to be announced tomorrow, according to media reports thus far, will dramatically limit China's ability to produce semiconductors and therefore restrict China from miniaturizing computing power and bringing uh, more advanced chips into Chinese data centers. Uh, and the effect of this is going to be to slow down China's advances in artificial intelligence across the board. Uh, it's the most dramatic tightening we've seen of controls on China in uh, in at least a decade, if not longer. Yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a confluence of a lot of different factors here because uh, we're talking about uh, uh, computers and artificial intelligence, and, which is uh, more and more these days becoming something that militaries depend on uh, for strategy and for weapons development and what have you, but also because of just basically consumer technology as well. And now selling consumer goods is is, is how a country can maintain a power in the world. How much money can it make? How many, how many things can it sell? So if, if uh, it was said that the next war would not be fought over oil, it would be fought over water. Are we now looking at something that one day we could be fighting wars over microchips? Well, today for China, chips are a real vulnerability. China spends more money every year importing chips than it spends importing oil. And most of the chips that China imports rely on U.S. technology. They're built in the U.S. or they're built in Korea and increasingly in Taiwan. And it's actually Taiwan that sits at the center of global chip production. 90% of the most advanced processor chips are made in Taiwan, which means that the entire world, not just China, but the United States and everyone else is deeply dependent on peace in the Taiwan Straits to guarantee our access to the most advanced chips. So uh, China is in a, a sort of chokehold that the U.S. has because the U.S. can restrict China's access to the most advanced chip making technologies. But the rest of us are in a bit of a chokehold, too, because uh, we need peace in the Taiwan Straits in order to get the chips that go into everything from iPhones to data centers. And so that's why I call my book Chip War, because there's multiple levels in which this competition is happening, but the stakes couldn't be higher. It's the future not only of trade flows and their technology, um, but also of, of, of military power, as you mentioned. Well, this decision by the Biden administration, tell me, how do you think China will react to this? Can they react to this? What, what might they do? Well, they certainly won't be happy. The problem that China faces is that they can't do all that much in the short term. If you want to make an advanced semiconductor today, you are really dependent on a small number of machine tools, which are mostly made in the U.S., in Japan, or in the Netherlands. There's just five companies that dominate this industry, and none of them are in China. And so in the short run, China can't do all that much. Now, right now, China is in the midst of a campaign to pour tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars into its ship industry over the coming decade. And so China's hope is that as this money uh, filters into its ship industry, it will find ways around the technological choke points that the U.S. currently holds. Um, but that's some way off. And at least for the short term, China will have no easy way around this issue at all. Um, all of the key producers of chip technology today, when you're looking at the most advanced ships, are either the U.S. or its close partners. And, of course, we're also in the middle of uh, what they're calling a chip shortage, uh, supply chain issues, and uh, people trying to buy cars have to wait because some of the chips that go into the cars are not available yet. Uh, how does that factor in? Well, it certainly highlighted the extent to which we're reliant on chips for almost everything we use in daily life. It's not just smartphones or computers. It's cars, which will often have dozens or even hundreds of semiconductors inside of them, or dishwashers or microwaves. Almost everything today with an on-off switch has a chip inside, which makes 
accessing the chips we need more important than ever. And the chip shortage of the past two years has had hundreds of billions of dollars of costs to the global economy. And the car industry alone, due to cars that it was impossible to produce because they didn't have the chips for them, the cost of the chip shortage was estimated at $200 billion. But the interesting thing about the chip shortage is that actually the world produced more semiconductors in 2020 and more semiconductors after that in 2021. The problem has been that demand has outstripped supply because we're putting computing power in ever more devices. And so long as that trend continues, uh, there's going to be a premium placed on accessing the most advanced chips. Well, your book calls this a fight for critical technology. Why is this a fight? Can there be no cooperation? Well, there's a lot of cooperation as it is. The, the supply chains needed to produce an advanced ship stretch from Europe to the U.S. to Japan to uh, elsewhere uh, in Asia. So there's there's certainly cooperation in that sense. But there's always been geopolitical competition that is intersected with that. I called the book Chip War because from the earliest days of the computer chip, which was actually invented to guide missiles more accurately, the first chips were in missile guidance computers. It's been a central technology for defense too. And right now we're at the end of an era where we've uh, we've uh, seen globalization increase and uh, many people have forgotten about the military applications of, of computing and of semiconductors. And I think we're in the early stages of uh, a new era in which the defense ramifications will be more important and there'll be more concern about potential risks to reliance on other uh, countries. And and that dynamic in the chip war has been with us since the earliest days of the chip industry, but it's becoming much more intense today than in recent years. Just before we let you go, I was going to ask you who has the advantage here, the U.S. or China. I take it from what you're telling us, the U.S. has the advantage here? Well, for now, it does. There's there's some risk that uh, China's uh, large uh, subsidy program changes the situation. And certainly, if any country can pull off a uh, jump forward in technology, it's China. But where things stand right now, the U.S. has some uh, deep and enduring advantages that it'll be very hard for China to overcome. Okay. Chris, thank you again. That is uh, Chris Miller, director of the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Eurasia program. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Chris Edens in for Mike Simpson. I'm Rob Archer in for Charles Feldman. They are getting ready. Charles and Mike, the big L.A. mayoral debate now just three hours away. It'll be right here on KNX. Karen Bass, Rick Caruso set the square off for their second debate. You know, Mike and Charles have been working very hard over the past few days. Just yes, they have. Uh, explicitly just on this, and uh, they're going to have some tough questions tonight. With us now is Dave uh, Derry uh, Schrago, political strategist and USC professor. Thank you so much for joining us. So uh, looking ahead to this debate, just uh, uh, three hours away now, uh, what, uh, as a strategist, do you say that each candidate needs to do and needs to accomplish in this debate? Yeah, um you know, I've been through these situations lots of times, and and the answer is pretty clear from a political strategist's point of view. Uh, all the public polling, and I assume the private polling that each of these uh, campaigns uh, is privy to, shows that Karen Bass is in the lead with likely voters. She has a pretty solid lead with, with her base, and her base is uh, more likely to vote than all voters. And Rick is doing better with all voters, meaning a lot of people who are not necessarily going to show up and vote. So uh, given that both of them have a very competent, skilled um, consultants, 
this really comes down to uh, both of them not making any unintentional errors and making news in a way that's going to come back to haunt them. That's number one. So they have to be fairly cautious. Uh, Karen probably has to be more cautious because she's in the lead. And Rick, uh, I would argue, if I was his consultant, can t- take some risks and 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 try to puncture uh, her her support amongst her own base and motivate that group of voters who like him but are less likely to vote. Gary, let me ask you this. Uh, in the case that maybe one of the candidates or one of their people are listening to us right now, is there a particular issue that you think might catch one of the candidates off guard, something they, they might struggle with? Well, there's always personal stuff that comes up when you do opposition research, and, and it's always conceivable that the campaigns have stuff that we don't yet know about, given the research they've done on their opponents. But, um, you know, the USC thing cuts both ways. I think Rick's tried that. I don't think he's gotten a lot of, of, of ground on that one. Um, clearly, homelessness is a, uh, just the, the overarching issue, the most visible issue in, in Los Angeles. Uh, I happen to have done a lot of opinion research on the homeless issue back in December, looking at voter attitudes about that. So I would think that would be one area where they're really going to duke it out, and they need to be mindful of exactly how voters view homelessness. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, because this is an issue that's been with us for many, many years now. And, you know, I joke that every candidate for mayor has said, I've got a plan to end homelessness. Well, we've we've every single one of them has said that they have a plan. And yet the problem persists. Uh, What else can be added to this question? And does anybody really have a plan in the minds of the voters? Do voters think that anything can actually be done about this? Well, that's the fascinating thing that we found. We conducted a whole bunch of focus groups. They were varied ethnically and by age and by gender. And I can tell you, when we reported this back in January, that there was not a single person in any of these focus groups had, who had any confidence that anybody in government can fix the problem. They absolutely do not believe that elected officials are either able or willing to fix the problem. So that's number one, meaning that these candidates have to be credible when they make claims about what they're going to get done with regard to homelessness. That's number one. Number two, these voters do not want bad things to happen to homeless people. They're empathetic. They're concerned about them. They want them to get the resources they need. But number three, and this is really where the rubber hits the road, they don't want to see these people. They're scared of them. They're disgusted by them. And they don't want anything bad to happen, but they just want them to be somewhere not encountered in their day-to-day life. So, you know, that's, that's a tough order to fill. Who do you think comes out more aggressive? Well, uh, clearly Rick is being more aggressive, in my opinion. Um, he's, I think, being more aggressive in terms of the goals that he's stating. And, you know, look, he has his own his own research amongst the voters, and he obviously and his team think that's the way to go. Uh, but, but what we saw when we did this research back in December is that when somebody starts to articulate those kinds of goals – um, a, it's just not credible, and B, policy makers in the world of homelessness always talk about housing being the solution. That's all they ever talk about. We need more housing. Well, from a voter standpoint, as I just suggested, they have a more immediate goal, which is they know it's going to take a long time to create enough housing to take care of the homeless. They just want the homeless moved someplace where they don't have to be, feel afraid of them. That's a very different goal. All right. The polls are tightening. You know, Karen Bass still has the lead among likely voters, but some of the polls are getting closer. So is this a time when they can not be uh, not be as polite as they've been? 
Oh, absolutely. I, I, you know, well, if anybody's going to be polite, it could be Karen, right? Because she's in the lead, and and uh, she is viewed as ethical and honest and as a very decent person. So maybe she can continue to take that high road. The question for her is going to be whether she tries to throw a, a, a real mean punch at Rick. And Rick, because he's behind with likely voters, uh, is uh, certainly from my standpoint as a strategist, going to have to. Uh, he, he, I don't think he'll get where he ha- where he wants to go just by being positive. I think he's going to have to try to do some real damage to Karen. And, you know, he's doing that in some TV ads, but we'll see whether he does it in a debate. Derry, one last question before I let you go. Uh, We're a little tight on time, but the fact that this is a radio debate as opposed to a television debate, I think back to uh, Kennedy, Nixon. uh, Kennedy took the makeup. Nixon didn't wear any makeup. Um, Everybody, the the results were basically that, that Kennedy won the television debate. But for people who heard it on the radio, they said, for the most part, Nixon came out better. Do you approach a radio debate different than a TV debate? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you you hit it on the head. I mean, TV is a visual medium, right? You're sitting there and or standing there and you're watching this thing and, and you see facial gestures and you see all kinds of cues that, that, that lead you to form an opinion about somebody. Uh, radio, obviously, you don't have any of that visual information, so you're relying on, on, on what you're hearing. But I think the important thing is that whether it's radio or TV, what neither candidate wants to have happen is that they make a serious error that haunts them after the debate is over. All right. Very good. Derry, thank you. Again, that's Derry Schrego, political strategist, USC professor. Do you feel better when you pet a dog? I mean, come on, who, <laughs> who doesn't? doesn't? Come right? on, yeah. Cute dogs are always happy. A new study looked into why that's the case. Yeah, researchers in Switzerland found when people pet a dog, a dog instead of, say, a stuffed animal, the front of their brains actually lights up. With us to explain how this works and why it's important is uh, Lee Richardson, brain health coach and founder of the Brain Performance Center. Lee, thank you for joining us. First of all, tell us uh, about this study, what it found, what happens to our brains when, when we pet a dog. Well, you know, this study is really the first of its kind that looked at what owning a pet can, what role that plays in your cognitive the mind and how your memory and, and how your brain works. And it's amazing to me that they took a stuffed animal that and they put a hot water bottle in its in the inside to make it feel warm like a dog would, but that people's brains reacted very differently to the stuffed animal than they did to the real dog. And you know, think about it. Now for me there's no question. I am a dog lady for sure. But when you think about when you touch, when you pet a dog, you know, that brings back emotional memory. Oh, my gosh, I'm on my third rescue dog that has a, some kind of pug mix in it. So when I reach down and I pet one up, the, the one I have now, I think back to the other two. There's emotional memory in that. That brings me joy. That makes me happy. You know, I'm a I'm a cat person, so I am going to ask you about uh, if this works for cats as well. But I know with dogs, I have had dogs before, and there's something special about dogs because I, I I I mentioned lightly, dogs are always happy. Well, if you're, if you're taking care of a dog and you love a dog, they're always happy. They're always happy to see you, and I think that's part of the thing that we get from them. How much does that that emotional connection that we have with our pets, like dogs, how much does that factor into what this does to our brains? I think it plays a huge uh, role in what it does to our brains because emotional, the brain's just not cognitive. The, the brain controls our emotional responses, how we emotionally connect with people. 
And I don't know about you. And, and the study showed that cats do it have an impact too. They even looked at other animals like rabbits, all kinds of animals, and they all had an impact. But dogs were first and cats were second. Uh, wait a minute. I think, Hold on. Cats uh -oh. are second? Oh. <laughs> I think, I think I we need a recount on that. You. Yeah. Uh, you're ruffling some feathers here. <laughs> or cat fur. <laughs> cat fur, exactly. Cat fur. Tell me, does this show the value and importance of emotional support animals? Absolutely. And, you know, research is, has been done previously that, that shows pet owning pets or having pet support reduces your stress level. And there's some markers that they look at. They look at your blood pressure. They look at your heart rate. They look at the cortisol levels in your brain and your blood. So research has shown that pets can reduce the stress in your life. Okay, so dogs uh, can reduce the stress in your life. Uh, did you look at the effects that this has have on uh, people who have, say, mental issues or, or are dealing with anxiety issues and, and what have you, where some medications may not work, but being in the presence of a dog or taking care of a dog actually does? Well, the study did not look at that, but I can tell you my personal experience is absolutely. Because the Brain Performance Center, we work with a lot of folks that are depressed and a lot of folks that are anxious. And having something just to love on that will love on you back can make a huge change in your mood. It can, you know, it gives you its warmth. It makes you feel connected. Do the dogs like it too? Oh, yeah. The dogs like it too. You or know or are you they know just putting up with us sometimes? <laughs> no, I think the dogs love it. You know, you know what dog is? And I, one of my clients told me this. Dog is God spelled backwards. I had not heard that before. Oh, that's very, <laughs> that's very good. I had not heard that before. That is, I'm going to use that one. That, that's very good. You know, I, I think there's a lot to this because it's good to see that now there's some scientific research backing this up. Because I'll tell a, a, a personal story. Uh, there was a time in my life I went through some some tough times, and I had a dog and a cat at the time. And I can tell you, I can put my hand on the Bible and swear to you that having that dog and the cat was something that kept me around because I wanted to make sure that they were taken care of because I knew that they depended on me. So there's something to be said about this this wordless relationship we have with our dogs. It doesn't depend on language. It depends on just simple feeling and love and affection and nothing else. Absolutely. You know, when you think about it, nothing makes me feel better when I'm kind of down than to go do something that helps somebody else. And nothing makes you feel better when you, who waits for you at the door the way your animal does? Nobody in my house does. Nobody starts jumping up and down and their tail starts wagging when they see my car pull in the, the street. <laughs> Lee, thank you so much. Thank you. Again, that's Lee Richardson, brain health coach, founder of the Brain Performance Center. That'll do it for KNX In-Depth, along with Rob Archer. Chris Seedens with you here today. We'll be back again tomorrow.